Dave here, just a couple of words before diving into the next episode. In spite of exhibiting an incredible determination during the last year of his life, we lost Johnny Fox to the cancer he'd been fighting on December 17, 2017. On April 1, 2018, Johnny was inducted into the Busker Hall of Fame by both the selection committee and through the popular vote in recognition of his many contributions to our world. Johnny was featured in two episodes of this podcast, episode 18, the Blood on the Pitch-themed episode, and episode 74, in which he discussed his personal history. If you haven't listened to these yet, then I'd recommend that you do. It'll give you a bit of insight into the man and his association with street theater. In addition to these recordings, there was one more moment that Johnny shared with us that we wanted to use to celebrate his life and memory, and to use as a reminder to all of us about how important the contributions we make to the world really are. One of the most memorable moments I ever had in street performing. A woman came up to me after a show. She said, thank you for saving my life tonight. I said, what are you talking about? I said, I didn't save your life. She says, you did. You don't know it. She says, I was about ready to go home and commit suicide. She says, I have the alcohol and the pills, and I know what to do. I said, why are you telling me this? She said, I haven't laughed in over five years. And I thought it was an emotion that had just left me, and I'll never be able to laugh again. And I'm walking by this crowd of people, and all these people are laughing. I was thinking, why can these people laugh and I can't? She said, I pushed my way through the crowd, and I found myself right up in front of you, and I was caught up in the moment, and I was laughing again. Hearing that after street performing, I was thinking, wow, we touch a lot of people that we don't even know. A lot of people have no idea. Thank you, Johnny, for everything you gave to the busking community and the gifts that you gave to every audience who ever had the privilege of enjoying your show. All right, let's get to it. If you've got one eye on how much you're going to get in a hat at the end, then you're not really committed to what you're doing in the moment. Exactly. And that was the part of the street, is that, you know, if you were doing something and 15 pigeons suddenly flew straight into your pitch... You've got something. Yeah. There's something else there. Yeah. And that to me was always, you know, you're looking for that. You're looking for the, yeah. you know, I used to keep an eye on the clouds. Oh, God, I know exactly what you're going to say. And, you know, you have that moment that, okay, the cloud, and you go, and let's have some darkness here, and then, you know, the yeah. cloud, and the audience would just go, wow! You know, you, for that moment, you're a god. Yeah, yeah. Like, literally, you're yeah, a god. Yeah. I remember seeing you do that. And realising that that's exactly the... That's the perfect example of literal street theatre. You're making a theatre out of the real street. And mm. that... It's like you say, it's a simple thing just to keep an eye on it. Mm. And to time it right. But if you time it right, it's such a fucking powerful thing. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It is a Rolodex of thing of yeah. you know, of moments in your head. Yeah. But you're always unaware and you're always looking around that, you know... I'd have five children and I'd, I'd separate them in a line and there'd be a person in a wheelchair and then I'd slar them through the kids. Yeah. <laughs> and people were like, you're not meant to touch people in wheelchairs. And you go, well, why? Why not? Why can't they be part of it? Yeah. And, and, and chances are the person in a wheelchair would just be laughing their heads yeah. off. And, and the rules are different if it's in a show. Exactly. You shouldn't do that in real life. But no, you can't just walk not up. not real yeah, life. Yeah. You can't just walk up to somebody and go, here, let's have a go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but... But yeah. Well, 
Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. Brash, opinionated, and passionate about creating inventive comic theater for audiences no matter what the venue. These qualities became evident to me when I first met Andre Vincent at the 1987 European Juggling Convention in Sens, France. I was intrigued by this guy who not only held himself to these types of standards, but expected, or perhaps demanded, that others care as much about the art form as he did. I think for many entertainers, financial gain becomes the primary motivator, so this dictates the creation of a show that follows a formulaic approach aimed at maximizing the hat. In just about every encounter I've had with Andre over the years, I've seen an entertainer go out, look at a space, and strive to take everything a venue has to offer and infuse it with comedy in the pursuit of creating a meaningful experience for both performer and audience. Theater first, money second. So where did this approach come from? Matt Ricardo sat down at Andre's seaside home to discuss Andre's journey as an entertainer and to learn about some of the venues he's played, the people he's met, and the things he's done in the pursuit of a gag in a life filled with some pretty amazing stories from the pitch. Okay, so, hello. Hello. <laughs> so I'm sitting in Andre Vincent's den. My den. And he lives by the seaside, and it's all very lovely. Um, it's alright, isn't it? It's, it's nice. It's a nice breakaway place. We both moved out of London and we both now live at different seaside yeah. places. Yeah, I mean, this was always just going to be, you know, I'd always stay in London and then I'd just have this breakaway Mondays to Wednesdays sort of thing and then work at weekends. And here we are sitting here on a Saturday and I'm in <laughs> full time. I ain't got gig tonight either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's suffering as far as an entertainment world goes, but it's lovely just to be sit by the seaside. Yeah. Quality of life is more important than quality of career. Yeah, absolutely. Keep, keep saying that until it's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have known you for thirty years. Yeah. But I first met you before you met me. Oh dear! It's one of those <laughs> ones. This is what you did to me. This is what you did, and I'm physically scarred. <laughs> Where did the clown touch you? Um, <laughs> The first time I ever saw you was mm. when I told my parents that I wanted to be a juggler. And they, to their credit, I guess, said, all right, let's go and see a circus then. And they took me to see Circus Senso at the Hackney Empire. Oh, no! Yes, mate, at 1986. Six. And you were a clown in the circus. I was. And you're the only thing I remember. And I don't know if that's because now I know you or because you were good. Probably a bit of both. So I saw that. Brian Andro and Sally Dewhurst, those who hold now together Cirque du Soleil in Vegas. Do they? Yeah, oh Didn't God, yeah. That. Yeah, Nikki was in it. Um, Brian, Brian, Brian Andrew, like, yeah. Brian Andro was, you know, he did the wire act. Um, he's now like the backbone of, wow. of Vegas Soleil. That's amazing. Yeah, the whole that. family moved out there, Stop Block and Stop Block and Arrow. Stop Block and Arrow. Stop Block and Arrow. <laughs> so I saw you then, and you were funny, and. I remember you were kind of, before the show started, you were in the audience doing business pieces. And I remember being very proud of myself as an idiot teenager going, oh, I think that's one of the performers. That's not a real person. (laughs) And then the next time I came into contact with you was again before we actually met, was when I started juggling and I went to Max Oddball's shop, which I think actually was when it was still part of the back room of his house. Oh, right. And I bought a copy of the American Juggler's World magazine. And in that, and I think I've still got it somewhere, there was a feature on Expo... 86. 86. 
that had photos of Chris and Alex and uh, oh the guy with the inflatable suit Fred uh, Fred Garbo Fred and you right and I looked at the photo of you and went oh it's him I remembered you from Circus Sense so, and I saw the photo of Chris and Alex and I think I knew Alex from like a, a juggling workshop or maybe from the Daniels show right and I, I sort of put put the, the, the dots together kind of drew lines from like circus workshops in London to to Covent Garden to uh, and it, what seemed like a fantastically exciting expo gig to being on stage and I thought this is all the same world you know yeah so yeah. therefore it is a world and therefore maybe I can have a shot at it you know and it is it is all part of that world and and that sort of you know when people always go oh you know street performing well it's somewhere at the start to get you a leg up and it's never it always annoyed me that because it to me it's always a you know it's just a step to the side yeah it's still part of yeah it's a great training ground but the expo 86 really was the everest it was the pinnacle it was it was amazing the amount of street performance that was brought to that festival. Uh, Jane Howard Baker, who organised it all, was just incredible. And the different acts that I saw and the people that I met there, it was just phenomenal. And that almost... I stayed in North America pretty much from summer of 86. I came back at, in the winters in, in Britain and did a circus in 86. And a year later, funny enough, I did 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I did a, a show in a swimming pool, which oh, was fantastic. which was amazing. But so there was always there was a reason, a project to come back for that was really different. Yeah. But most of the time, I, I was in North America, doing festivals and Renaissance fairs, and it was great. That, yeah. that time, that late eighties, everybody was trying things, and there was festivals left, right, and centre. And the Buskers Festival started in Canada, so that got you across. And, the, and then the fringes that were happening in Canada sort of went, well, let's make more of the street performers. And it was superb. It seems to me that, because that's when I started, and it seemed to me that, it, exactly as you say, in the late 80s, very early 90s, the art form of street performing and street theatre was incredibly exciting. I remember the people that were at Covent Garden when I arrived. It was a fucking menagerie of craziness. Yeah. You know, apart from the geniuses like Dr. Stewart and people like Tony Anthony. But then there were... Do you remember Dr. Abrams? Oh, that rings a bell. He was like a mime artist, skinny white guy, who dressed like a sort of businessman with a bowler hat and glasses. Oh, and yeah, 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 yeah. in lingerie, whipping a volunteer. And yeah. It was just... It, it seemed to me to be a place where, if you had an idea, you could go and let it mm. grow. Mm. So it was artistically absolutely interesting. And then I saw it, and I hope it doesn't make me sound very bitter, but I, I saw it, in one sense, find its own niche, find its own what a street show is, but also get a lot more sort of narrow band. Well, there was that moment where everyone suddenly went, well, if you do this, this, now you say this before you do the big bit at the end, yeah. you make money. Yeah. I think there was a genuine concern of let's just be crazy and have a great time and we'll put a hat out at the end and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think that really was true. And I think that's why I enjoyed North America so much because they had gone through that. They were very much like, you know, when I got to the pier in San Francisco, everyone was like, you do this, you do this and you do that. 
And I was like, well, let's start up on the balcony. Let me start up there. And they, well, why would you do that? Well, if I start shouting from up there, people will go, what's going on? And I'll get a bigger crowd and it will attract people. And sure enough, it did. And then I'd get these absolutely massive crowds. But because I hadn't done, you know, the systematic, now you do this, you do that, mm. and then you say that before bottling, I would then just bottle at the end. And, you know, people say, you had the biggest crowd I've ever seen. Your hat is shit. <laughs> and you go, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. There was that sort of, that's what you do. And I think, yeah, you're right. It, it certainly sort of dulled down the concept of fun and anything could happen. Yeah. It was by the numbers. Yeah. Which is not to say there's not an art form to that. No, of course not. I mean, that's exactly what I pretty much do now when I climb up on stage and do, you know, if if I'm doing, well, I say that, if something, you know, I'll always live by um, bend like the willow, not strong like the oak. Yeah. I mean, I certainly learned that from street performing. Yeah. It's what got me into doing stand-up in the first place was there was a, a gig in Woolwich, the Woolwich tram shed, and the Woolwich has got the huge barracks. And what happens is if we're in a conflict, the bar- there's usually a curfew on the town, and if we're in, like I said, a conflict, the curfew gets lifted. So nothing were all these squaddies turning up at this comedy gig. And the people were just being heckled, and it was horrible. And the person that ran it, Addison Cresswell, said, look, you know, you do street performing. You and all these people, go and do it. And I was on stage, and, you know, and they're talking to these squaddies, going, you're going to the golf next week? <laughs> Hope you die. And they were going, yeah! <laughs> it was that sort of, like, gallows humour, and yeah. it was that world of street performing that you dared to do that. Yeah. That you kind of took it on and... And, you know, and it was, I suppose it it, it did have that. When you look at the really early stuff in North America, when Pendulette and Michael Motion were working together and, you know, these people were coming up with these different ideas and let's just try that, let's just try that. I mean, Garbo's suit is the perfect example. I watched that. I mean, Garbo got there and he had the suit and that was his show. And then at Expo, he went, actually, I'm going to climb in a garbage bin and I'm going to have my own pavilion in a garbage bin. And we were like, oh, that's brilliant. So, you know, there was suddenly this room for experiment. It is what I um, always got into a row with Robert Nelson about. Butterfly always loved European clowning. He loved the idea that the skill didn't matter. You know, it would take a, a clown in Europe 10 minutes just to get to three clubs. And I would say, but if he's got three clubs there... You know he's going to juggle them. What is the point of the clubs being mm. there? If he could discover them or discover something else, and I go with it, but if you put three clubs out and a unicycle, the, you know, it would bore me senseless, the people yeah. who would pretend they can't ride a unicycle. Then why the hell is it there? Yeah. It doesn't make sense yes. if it's there. You don't get something out if you can't use it. You see it on burlesque shows now with the girls with all the hula hoops. They kind of like do one and two and there's a big pile. I can't do that. Yes, you can. Otherwise, you wouldn't have them. (laughs) You wouldn't have bought them on stage. So don't pretend that you can't do it. That's just stupid thinking. But he would love that. He would love that. Well, I I had this thing. I love the fact that North American performers would work so hard during the summer, make so much money, and then they would... For the winter, they would either go to Hawaii or Montreal. They would go and they would work on a brand new piece. Mm. They would work so hard on a skill. And the next season, they'd come out and they'd go, where's he got a ladder for? Oh, my God, he's climbing a ladder. He's Oh, he's doing a ladder balance. Oh, he's got a wheelbarrow on his chin standing on a ladder. Oh, my God, I've never seen anything like that. And that would be it. It would be done in, you know, eight minutes. 
Yeah. And you're right, and a European clown would probably make that last 30 minutes. And I like the fact that they just went, here it is, look at this, boom, I can do it, how good am I? Yeah. And I kind of went, you know, I like that. I said, and so it was, we, we always disagreed on the two principles of sort of like the European street performers and the North American performers. He, he wanted the, you know, that magic of what I always call the art of oops, which I do think is important yeah. when you're clowning. But if you've got the props there, no, get yeah. to it, get yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. If you've got the props and you do something completely different with them, even yeah. better. Yeah. Even better. I guess that's kind of what I do with my tablecloth in that I make it obvious right at the top of the show that here's what's going to happen and mm. I'm going to do it. But then at my choice, I'd say, yeah, but not yet. You know? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. to fuck with them. Yeah, and, but then you've also got the topper off yeah. and now it's back on. Yeah. So, you know, you've taken a prop and you've done what's expected and now here's the twist. Yeah. That, which, that, that yeah. was always the plan for that is to, yeah, is to, you give them the menu. Mm-hmm. And they order the food, and you give them the food, and you give them something extra for dessert they didn't order that is fantastic. Mm. You know, it's, mm. it's like an Italian restaurant being given a nice uh, shot of something after your meal for free. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, it's that extra thing. Yeah. I mean, you look at New Circus now. I, I mean, you, there are so many circuses that just get to, you know, they do. I mean, I, I say, you know, get to the skill if you've got it la- laid out on the cobbles. But if it's hidden in the wings, then you can have so much fun yeah. to get to it. And I do, I hate that in New Circus, when there's no, you know, there's somebody swinging on a trapeze. I've seen such skill recently that is just amazing. I saw a person on a tree swinging on a trapeze and somebody standing below them and they did a back somersault and the person, they did a leg cross as they were swinging in. Just brilliant. Yeah. But why? Yeah. Why did you just do that? There, you know, if, you know, people moan about old circus but there's a wonderful thing of i'm going to try a triple somersault i failed i'm going to try again i failed now we're all there now we're all kind of like oh this had better be boom i've done it and the, the excitement and the thrill from the audience when i was a kid when that happened was just dynamic mm. and now with everything being that let's just get straight you know boom that fun's missed that yeah. excitement whatever the journey so you know as much as i say i don't like it there i like it there yeah you know it's i'm a contradiction but i guess it's like everything there's a set of tools and it's finding the right one for each job it's yeah you know when, exactly. when will this technique work best yeah yeah i think it's just that boring sort of thing of i can't do this you kind of go it's then. easy to do badly yeah exactly you know and especially as a street performer it's really hard if you've got a big unicycle to not put it out on the cobbles because you know people are going to go oh he's got a big unicycle yeah. and they go, but what it gains you an audience it maybe loses you theatrically yeah remember Alex Dandridge I think I'm right in saying used to hide it around the back of the pillar and get it out halfway through the show exactly which is a tiny little thing but it shows that he's prioritising theatre over you know desperation yeah. for an edge yeah the that was it yeah the here it is look at this and yeah. there was a moment of, ta-da! Exactly, ta-da! Yes, yeah. yeah. Alright, so let's track back a little bit. Because we're still on my first question. Oh shit, sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> this is always going to happen. So I first saw your Circus Centre when I was a teenager. So, what's your journey up until that point? I had, th- I was always performing. I performed yeah, at an early age. Yeah, yeah. I was one of those little theatre brats that, you know, from the age of seven... 
I auditioned for something, got it, and then that was it. Um, when in a, a local theatre needed messenger, waif, urchin. Waif? Waif. You get a waif. <laughs> yeah, look, there's a, there's a young street waif. <laughs> a dock waif. Uh, a, a Winslow boy. You know, I was... I always auditioned and, and, and did very well. So I was earning money at an early age. Right. And, and I just knew what I wanted to do. So it was bizarre, you know, still having to go to school and get an education and, you know, and being told, well, this might not work for you. Well, it is now. <laughs> well, what, 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 what are you saying? <laughs> well, and, and so that was it. I was always performing. And then what happened was I did a show that needed circus skills. And I went, oh, I like this. Yeah. I like this. This is fun. And just got a little bit of a buzz out of, you know, it was just three balls and a bit of unicycling. And I kind of went, oh, I like this. Um, and somebody went, oh, there's this intense course you can do in Paris. Fratellini's, like mm. six months. And so I went and did that. I went and did that. I think that was 82, 83. And I was just blown away. I was, you know, 18-year-old kid just went wow this is great and you know in six months you know they got me on a wire and catching and and just so i just learned every sort of basic you know how to fall over properly it was just wonderful and then it was so i did a few circuses you know i kind of like put myself out there and did a few circuses but was aware that you know when you're in paris you go down to pompadour and you you know you watch a yeah. few people down there and and i was aware of street performing and then there was a, another mate of mine who'd also picked up some circus stuff and we kind of went well we don't want to pass clubs we don't it was at that time it was very much you know hits to a three three ten and that's how we finish and you know let's knock a cigarette out the mouth and yeah and we kind of like i like the idea of street performing and you know we tried a little bit of unicycling or whatever and went, i don't want to do this i like the street performing and that's when what we also noticed was how charlie you know, Charlie with the acrobat dressed as Charlie Chaplin. Oh, Charlie Pactel. Yeah, would oh. um, Omid Pactel. Omid Pactel. Omid yes. Pactel is real name. Uh, but Charlie would just get a crowd by looking like Charlie Chaplin. And I, being a chunky lad, and my mate being a skinny lad, we went, let's do a Laurel and Hardy, and we'll start with doing commencing dancing. And it was such an easy way of getting an yeah. audience. It was just like boom, they were there, and we did that, and then we just did a melodrama. We did a, a melodrama using members of the audience, and it was just fun and silly, and that's got me into it. And I like the idea of, street, of of audience participation. And then he went off, and you know his circus skills got stronger, and he went off and did Barnum. And so um, I ended up saying, "Well, I, I want to stay on the street," and that was it. It was audience participation, improvisation. That was yeah. always what it was. It was getting the audience to do things. And when you arrived at Covent Garden, who was there? Mike Walkerin yeah. was um, there doing his craziness with sponges and mime, and he was amazing. Yeah. Dave Brown, uh, oh, magician. Dave Brown with uh, the vanishing hanky. The vanishing hanky. That's a and, and Yeah, up and down the body, and toilet seats, and, yeah. and um, John McKenna, Sid Rasputin, mm -hmm. doing the uh, escape. Who else was it? Uh, the Vicious Boys, mm -hmm. Andy Smart and Angelo. They were they were the boys to to watch and they had the, you know the show. So were they? Because I remember as a teenager they were on TV. Were they on TV at the same time they were on the street? 
Yes, they were. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. They sort of like, I mean, you know, they were part of the backbone of the new wave. Yeah. It's the second role of alternative comedy. You know, it had the first role in 79 in Britain. Yeah. And, you know, the first comedy store opened and then everyone just went, well, it's just a bear pit. It's just about a gong. Nobody gets paid. And then French and Saunders and um, Rick Bell and Aid Emerson, they went off and they did one in um, the old strip club yeah. in Raymond's Review Bar. And they created their comedy place. And then that sort of finished very quickly. And then there was just this lull, 80, 81. There was, you know, universities, but people were starting to open up clubs. And then that second big wave, the, the big one was places like um, uh, Covent Garden had a place called Apples and Snakes, which was poetry God, yeah. and comedy. I think and I played it really early yeah, on. Yeah, they, they sort of like, and then cast started doing stuff. Yeah. Um, Roland, they, they run the Hackney Empire. Yeah, Roland Muldoon yeah. and Claire Muldoon. Yeah, they went on and and the sort of cast got pushed aside for them to open the um, Albany Empire. But yeah, and so there was quite studenty. But then that sort of off the curb, which is now the biggest comedy agency in Britain, off the curb was a street performers agency. Crazy. And they had like Pookie Snackenberger, uh, the Vicious Boys, uh, I think Hegley and the Popticians. So these were people that were moving off the street and into yeah. theatres and and are and, all still doing things now in other places. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I but, mean, I mean, Pookie Snackenberger was, you know, Luke Cresswell, which is now Stomp. Yeah. And if you look at Stomp, although it's in a theatre. He used to do this thing called the Urban Warriors, which started out as them just drumming on the streets and on bins and and on each other. They had like bits of metal on them, and they were just mm. you know. And and you, it, the whole thing is just like an urban street yard look, anyway. Yeah. So yeah, it was a real street performers based show when it started, and yeah, they were the ones that were around at that time. And of the gang that were there at that time, were there any particularly that you look back on and see as influential and important for you? Yeah, I, I suppose the Vicious Boys, I have to say, were they, you know, they were the ones that we looked up to and just went, wow, it's so simple. Yeah. They got no props. They were travelling the world. Everybody wanted to see them perform. They were doing TV. It was, it really was. They were there like, poof. And they had that real kind of... <sighs> street performing style of kind of rough and ready charisma yeah yeah kind of slight slightly testosterone charm yeah yeah which is a real i think a real street performing thing yeah yeah they were they were sort of slightly laddie and and especially during the you know the 80s where everything was so pc it was you know that first pc sort of labeling everything and it can't be sexist can't be racist it can't be you know and it was everything had the ist on the end and um they were slightly they were pushing it a little bit yeah but it was still harmless it was still family as well yeah which was great even though they were slightly laddie i remember seeing them their first run in edinburgh in 84 and they were in the wildman room and they were sort of like stepping out of the street performing sort of thing and, and dealing with members of the audience. And there was a nice moment where 
somebody said something in the room and Andy Smart just went, let's see if we can guess which brain disease this person has. And it was like, wow, I've never seen him use that sort of line. At which point this person got up and was quite severely disabled and was walking towards the door going, well, I, I, I don't have to put up with this. And the whole room went quiet. And, and he went, you know, I, I, I spent £7 on this. And Andy, bless him, just went, I think you'll find it was £5. Which I thought, <laughs> wow, how brilliant to keep going. Yeah. And the person suddenly stood up, upright, and turned around and walked back to their chair without a single limp or anything and just went, yeah, it's well worth the money. Oh. And both Andy and Angelo hit the floor. I'm just like, you bastard. And the place was just wow. like in uproar. That this person had done this. Jesus. But quite rightly had gone, you know, you shouldn't really be saying something like that because this might happen. But, you know, it was a real Andy moment. Just went all in on it. Yeah. And he wasn't going to give up. Yeah. And it was great. It was great that the person then just went, actually, I shouldn't do this. And it was, a, <laughs> but oh, it was, you know, one of those moments. And I remember, I remember seeing another ex street performers who had gone inside Lost Trios Ring Barkers. Yeah. who were two clowns from Australia. They were a big influence. They were just so crazy and didn't care. And there was just a one lovely moment. I was watching the show once where one of them just goes, I'm going to go and make a chair. You entertain the audience. And runs off and he leaves him standing there and there's just like bed linen. And he puts the bed linen over him. And he goes... I'm the Virgin Mary, like this, which gets a laugh. <laughs> and then he brings the pillow up, and it's just moving, twitching. And it's, this is the baby Jesus. And it got a laugh, and a woman tutted. And he looked at her, and he just went, do you want a baby Jesus? Like that. And this woman went, no, I don't. I'm Jewish. And without missing a beat, he just went, well, you can take it home and nail it to your wall. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I just went, wow, wow, that performer is just in the moment and doesn't care. Yeah. Is ruling the room. Doesn't care about, you know, the, the, any thought of this audience member. It was so street in sight. Yeah. I think that's certainly one of the things that, that makes a good street performer a good street performer, whether or not they're performing on a street, is that not caring thing. Yeah. Is, is yeah. And as another influence, I, I once saw Theatre to Complicite do a mm. street show. Ooh. And I don't know if you remember in the far corner on King Street, there's a fire escape. Yeah. And it must have been about 20 minutes in when suddenly somebody, suddenly, we didn't even know this other person was on top of the fire escape, was suddenly shouting at them. Oh, and then they all, and it was just wonderful. Yeah. That you just suddenly could go, of course you use everything. Yeah. I remember back in, you know, I don't want to use the phrase back in the day, but I mean, you know, I've got memories of Covent Garden from when I arrived, 87, 88 to 91, 2, golden age. Sunny every day. Every single hat was exactly £100. Every calf breakfast was perfect and didn't make me fat. And it was, like you say, the Rolodex of things. There would be at a certain time in the afternoon, the rubbish truck would come through. Mm. And they wouldn't mind if you fuck with it. No. I remember surfing it once, climbing on top of it and surfing it. And I look back on that, and the whole thing is moving and mechanical. No. And I could have died so easily. And the bins, I don't think even... 
know if they have bins anymore. No, yeah. I mean, that was part of the fun of maybe putting a couple of bins on top of each other. Yeah. Putting another one aside and trying to climb up. Yeah, and, 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 and standing um, on the edge of the bin and falling mm. inside. It's the, the, the test to find out if somebody, if they are claiming to have worked Covent Garden a lot, the test is where do you hang up your coat? Right. You know, only if you've worked Covent Garden do you mm. know exactly where to hang up your coat, mm. which is a tiny little nail in the... Left, left side pillar, pillar. Yeah. yeah. And I, whenever I walk through, I always, if there's no, no, I always just have a little feel to make sure the nail's still there. Yeah. And it is still there. Yeah. Or how is the big plaque under the church held up? It's by four little bits of gaffer tape. Four bits of gaffer tape. <laughs> that used to be my regular thing where people would stand there and read it and go, and if you take the gaffer tape, that's going to fall straight down on yeah. top of you. And, and you'd see people move away. <laughs> and this makes no sense to anybody <laughs> listening who hasn't worked at Covent Garden. Yeah. If you have, you're laughing now because you know what this is. Yeah. Uh, so is it is that kind of period of golden age for you as well do you look back really fondly on that time-ish yeah yeah I do I mean it's bizarre isn't it now here I am as a stand-up and writer and my main work now is from September to sort of April yeah and now I'm fighting for work at the moment and yet in those days it was the other way around. Yeah. I'd just be festival after festival and street performing the street, you know, doing anything and everywhere. And then go, oh, how am I going to get through the winter? Yeah. All right, I'll go and sit in Thailand. You know, <laughs> if in doubt, be... go and yeah. sit in Thailand. That was always a thing. <laughs> you could always go, you know, get a tent and just pitch it up in, you know. Wow. In one of the... Oh, that was, you know, I did that one year. It was lovely. And, and so, yeah, I look back at it, you know, with fond memories and slightly miss it but I'm just not match fit you really have to be it really is you know you you, you see occasional you know I see Lynham mm. and he's sort of happy to still doing that world and I'm glad he's found um, I've not seen it this Eric Eric the split or whatever it is this new clown character oh, that he's doing that. yeah he's doing inside but you know when Chris Lynham was you just get yeah. I mean, he is an incredibly fit man, yeah, and can still perform. But I, I would just, you know, I'm very envious of his, of him. Yeah. But, but you know, I just can't do it anymore. The idea of any form of clowning. I, I mean, it was good to have a go last year. I, um, Peter Post dragged me and Alex out, and we did the Oral Festival onto Shelling, nice. which hadn't done for a while. That's and, a lovely and, one. Yeah. And it was more just character-based and clowning-based and fun and, you know, and I had a few costumes and I kind of went out on my own and did some did some silliness. But, you know, there is that where people are just looking at you and going, yeah, you're a bit old to be doing that. You're a bit, <laughs> you, you look a bit, you know, I've got a beautiful sou'wester that goes all the way down to my ankles and a big sou'wester hat and the beard and, and I, you know, if it poured with rain and the, no one could put, I would just go out in that sou'wester with a pipe and we're just standing going I've lost my bow I can't find my bow anywhere there was something about when you did that as a kid you'd go that's a performer now I'd get people coming up and genuinely concerned like looking at me going where do you think you may have if you what what you know I can't get away with this anymore I'm kind of either frightening people or Worrying people. That, that feels to me like reasons to do it. <laughs> yeah, but 
<laughs> but you sort of like need that little moment of going, oh, it is comedy, oh, it is... Yeah, it's you, okay. Yeah, what you've become is an art installation. <laughs> <laughs> is that bad? That's okay. <laughs> well, that's just one step away from being a statue. Oh, fuck. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Good yeah. point. Man. Um, yeah. So the was... between being a street performer and an art installation is just like 20 years. Yeah. Just age. <laughs> just age. And <laughs> <laughs> prepared to put makeup on your face. No, I'm um, always prepared to do that. That's true. <laughs> yeah, so... so it was, yeah, it was fun, but it was like people generally kind of going, ooh, is, is, is he all right? Is he, is he, is he all right? So, yeah, you have to be... I don't know. I don't I know. Think is you there... can still do street shows. You need something immediately that says, "I am a performer." I think you've got that. I think people know. <laughs> Generally, Generally I mean, if, I think if so. you think about it, you know, we would used to go out in business suits and and, yeah. and perform, and there was there was something about somebody in their mid twenties. That's true. In a in a business suit, that you immediately went, "This is a performance." Yeah. I do it now as a man in his early fifties. I yeah, it, it does. They kind of go, "Is he all right? Is he? Yeah. What's he doing?" And also, I have to say, a man in his early twenties who suddenly does a trick for a kid is a performer. A man in his early fifties who does suddenly does it for a kid, you find you know. Any time I'd stop and talk to a kid in, onto Shelling, there was that sort of slight tug of a you know. I mean, well, I, is that know, society now? You can blame that on age. Is it just you, though? I mean, was that always true for yeah, you? <laughs> yeah, that's very yeah, true. No, I, th- I think society's changed, certainly. That they are that, you know, that maybe when I was a kid you didn't worry. But there is something about, you know, you can tell when somebody is performing to yeah. a kid because they're an early person. You know, that, that sort of, like, young, virile, oh, hey, yeah, I'm going to do a trick for you. Yeah. Now I do it, and people are like, what are you up to? What are you doing? <laughs> You don't have that other of innocence. Yeah. Why have you got an erection? It doesn't help. <laughs> it, doesn't it doesn't help. help. No, it's not ideal. <laughs> you can, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> Three gags just got censored in my head. <laughs> um, so, I've written down some words that I think describe you. Oh, God. <laughs> no, it's good. It's nice. It's nice. You know that I feel very fondly for you. Funny. You are funny. Okay. You are rambunctiously funny. Rambunctiously? You are. You're, you know, you're like the person, uh, like, punching me on your arm going, hey, hey, hey. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You're a kind of, you're a big happy puppy, is what you are. Um, and I remember back in the day that at the same time, you were incredibly supportive of the art form and people who you thought were doing it well, and of me. You were really supportive of me. But also, you don't suffer fools at all. Yeah. My problem was when I saw somebody doing something wrong, as opposed to just be calmly going, if you thought about, you know, maybe, you know, looking at that bit, I'd just go around and go, oh, that bit shit. Yeah. That <laughs> bit. What are you doing? I remember upsetting John Chappell, and I oh. I know, I regret it to the day, but I was so angry with John Chappell, who kept mouthing Paddy's words when it... Oh, Paddy would be saying it and you could see John just saying it at the same time. And I kind of pointed out to him a couple of times and then one day I just lost it with him. Just saying, you shouldn't be out there. If you can't do it and still can't do it, you shouldn't. And I, I regret it to this day. 
that I went in so hard. And I thought, you know, there's a part of me that, you know, that has that old 50s way that probably my father did it, that you mm. you show someone up to make them do it properly. Yeah. That that's how my father would do it. And I kind of probably thought, well, if, if I make him feel embarrassed, he's going to turn around and go, I'll prove you wrong and do it yeah. well. And I just think I just completely upset him and I regret that. I do regret that. Uh, I, you know, no, bless him. I mean, well, he's doing well now. Fuck him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there, you know, there are moments where I would do that and I can remember upsetting people, thinking, you know, and I'd also go for a cheap laugh without thinking sometimes and maybe upset people. Uh, I remember, I mean, you, I remember you upset me a few times, but I also remember that you were right, that you knew better than I did. I was a fucking 17-year-old, wet behind the ears, dick. And you knew the craft that I was just learning. So in the moment, you would say, you know, that's shit. Don't fucking do it. You're in embarrassment. And I would in that moment go, oh, I'm being bullied. I'm being bullied. But then afterwards, I remember really vividly that, A, you would be right. And B, when you were encouraging, I was. it was really like I made dad happy. You know, it was really you were someone that I... Right. Who your words of encouragement really meant something because... I saw the way you expressed yourself with me and others that you took this shit seriously and I totally respect that. And right. I did in the moment as well. I did back then. It, you know, I, I mean, I was... I'm not super thick-skinned now, but back then I was, you know, crepe paper skin. So I was, like, hurt by things. But even back then, while I was being hurt by things, I remember thinking that you had a breadth of knowledge I didn't have. So, I, you know, you were right. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was there were some people, you know, when I saw people doing somebody's act yeah. or, you know, I'd just be, I'd be, I, I would get so angry with that. Mm. If somebody had created something new and then uh, and, and a month later they were doing it, it would infuriate me so much. Yeah. So much. And it certainly happened in North America quite a lot. People would go away and, you know, and they would work on something and then, you know, they'd present it. And then within a few weeks, you'd see other people doing it. And you, it would just go, why, why, why? Yeah. Why? Why? And they couldn't understand it. And I never, I never got that. I never got that. Yeah. I never understood what, what you're doing, what? And the first buskers festival to suddenly see so many people we were at nova scotia i think that was 87 in halifax nova scotia and i walked around and i was like i've seen so and so do that i've mm. seen so and so do that. i saw um waldo and woodhead for the first time there and that was like wow they're brilliant i love that but genuinely it was very you know everyone seemed to be very American dream, that kind of, hmm. you know, here we are, here's the clubs, here we go, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, here we go, here's some balls, da-da-da-da, da-da. it's like, oh, no, come on. And, and me and Toby Kubernick started not showing up to shows, just, you know, where we were booked in to do a show there and people would come and we go, nope, not doing it. 
Now, if you want to come see us, we're going to do one tonight, 11 o'clock at night, in the Mayor's show. And they'll be like, you can't do one there. It's dark. And we found, we were lucky enough to find, we were mucking around in the rose bushes in the park, we found plug sockets. <laughs> so we nicked all the lamps out of the hotels that we were staying at with other people. And we put all the lamps in the rose bushes. And so he and I would write a show during the day and put something together at 11 o'clock at night. And it's suddenly like the whole of this mayor's square would just be full just to come and see us. Oh, fantastic. Just either rip the piss or, you know, we bought loads of, there was butterflies everywhere on all the houses in Nova Scotia. And we, we sort of bought quite a few of them and we were giving them out as prizes and telling them what they represent. Mm. And it was just fun. It was really fun and really different. And we, we worked on our fire routine and that was silly and a lovely thing of me putting out the fire in my crutch. And then Tommy then had a little thing that then squirted smoke out of his crutch. Oh, that's nice. And it was just, we were just coming up with these things during the day and going, oh yeah, let's do that, let's do that. And then suddenly I realised, this is where I work the best of that kind of working during the day, thinking about it, and then just ba 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 at night. Mm. And then people were asking me, you know, can you come and do the festival and, and think about, you know, we want to do this show and we want to do that show, we want to do a fire show, we, you know, put it together and do that. And that was great. And then we did the Heffalumps. Yeah around Europe mm. that was I saw that show that was nice really a lot of getting up in the morning going right what are we doing tonight right we've got two hours in the main tent yeah. how do we do this and that was weird you know and do you know they had a big vote for who was going to be the burgomaster no oh. so at the end of the festival the island are voting on who's going to be burgomaster for the year and we say can I stand for burgomaster and yoke's like yeah yeah why not why not and then one of the people that was up for it found a picture of me a few years earlier at the festival drunk in my underpants <laughs> in a child's crib <laughs> and he made this poster and put it up everywhere going do we want this man for mayor what will he do to our children <laughs> and people found it hysterical because it is yeah and it sort of backfired and I won. <laughs> and, and suddenly I was burgomaster of the Shelley for a year. <laughs> and what were your duties? I had one duty. I, I went back in October. The Brandaris was 800 years and I had to go to a dinner. I mean, the whole idea of a, a burgomaster on the island, I think, was a piss take because the house, the mayor's house, was no bigger than a Wendy house made of concrete. Yeah. It was very funny, very silly. But it was, yeah, oh, it was... fantastic. yeah. It was desperately looking for material, and I ended up doing that. It's like, ah, oh, all right, all right. It's just uh, that happened to me before um, in Edinburgh. Me and Brigstock looking for material. We're filming. We've got the TV show, the late edition mm -hmm. during the evening, and then the early edition where we're writing the material for the evening show. And there's uh, every year, you know, you can stand to be on the board of directors for four years of the Edinburgh Festival. And we decide, well, shall I stand for a laugh just to see where it goes? And we went, yeah, yeah, it'll be a laugh. And I got on. <laughs> and in the end, it was, it was a board of the directors. of I was a director of the Edinburgh Festival for nine years. <laughs> From a joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's the perfect way to get that. Yeah, I suppose what so. What better way? Yeah, you know? yeah. 
from being that silliness of going, yeah, let's do this for a laugh. Ah, oh, I've done it. Yeah, yeah. and also because it's you, it's like now I care. Yeah, that's you it. Know. That there is passion. I'm not, and... I'm not just going to piss around. No, with it. it's like no. this is important to me. Yeah, yeah. When did you when did you stop street performing and become a stand up comedian? Um, I suppose ninety one. I sort of was doing it. I was doing. Is that when I saw you at the tram show? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but was still street performing, still yeah. enjoying street performing. I think I did. Um, I went back to circus that year as well. I, I went to the Norwegian National Circus. Um, so that was, you know, straight back to carpet clown. So there was stand up, there was clowning, still street performing, still doing stuff with, with then the high flubs have become the bowlers. Right. Um, and when you were at circus clown, were you were you makeup? No, just no, still you, just still yeah, me, yeah. Okay. just still me. They were all like, should you wear a red nose? Nope. Nope. It was me. And it was, again, it was that being in the crowd at the beginning. Right. And they were very kind of like, I don't really get this. Why would you do this? I mean, even, you know, we would pull up at places that I'd just go, we're in the middle of nowhere. And at six o'clock, 2,000 people would just come out the mountains and would just, you know. And there was a lovely moment before the tent was open and I realised there'd be a crowd outside. And so, you know, would do a thing. There'd always be a hill or a mountain. And I would always, you know, just appear and then just come tumbling down. <laughs> and people were like, oh, my, you know, is this, what is uh, this? Oh. <laughs> you know, they'd never, you know, so there was always that. And I had a, I'd put a unicycling act together, which was very strange for me. It was sort of like, you know, hat tricks and, and unicycling act. And um, a basketball hoop. I had a, had a basketball board with a hoop above my head. And throwing the ball out to the audience, and they would, you know, and it was, yeah, it was proper old, and I, I really enjoyed it, just a, a season of that. But I was still being drawn back to North America, doing stand up, um, you know, doing, but I went and did the Ameriflora in 92, which was a very odd gig, but open for Bob Hope, which was nice. Wow. So that was good. That's um, fun, because I toured with British comedian Brian Connolly. Who also opened for Bob Hope. Oh, wow. Yeah, you got that in common. Oh, wow. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, yeah. And so, you know, I was doing street performing and, and at the Meriflora and, and Impro. And then I was sneaking out and I was uh, in Columbus, Ohio, doing stand-up there as well. And I had this feeling that the stand-up was going to stay in North America. I was probably going to settle down either in Vancouver or, or Atlanta, I wasn't sure. And because it, the English accent was such a cheat. Yeah. Sort of my first ever stand-up was in 89. I was in um, North Florida. And, you know, and I, I, I kind of went, stand-up? No, there's, there's no costume, there's no props, you don't care, you just turn up in your jeans, jacket, you don't care about what you're doing. And as soon as I spoke, and these people heard, people heard my accent, it was like, you're so cute! You're so... <laughs> and I was like, this is easy. So I always thought that, and then what happened was... The last ever Heffalump Bowler Show was in, was it 93? Beginning of 93, and I shattered my knee on stage. Oh, that's right. The um, Paradiso shattered my knee and then was stuck in bed for six months in London, in a cast, leg up, and the circuit which had only been really you know 92 I did Edinburgh with did the comedy zone it was me Harry Hill Al Murray and Brenda Gilhooley doing Gal Tuesday whatever happened to them exactly um, 
and it was it was you know and I was doing a few other places but my god they rallied around and you know they did a benefit for me at the comedy store people were constantly coming over with food parcels and and it was like wow yeah. These people care. This is really nice. There was a community there that, uh, you know, as much as I'd, I'd love street performers, there was, you know, we, we'd never really found someone falling over. It was like, <laughs> get on with it, you know. <laughs> um, and so on the other end of that, it was sort of almost out of guilt that I kind of went, well, I'll stay around for a little while, you know, doing all these things and help people, you know, as, as a way of thank you. And then that was it. I just sort of settled in and... I was living in Highgate in the House of Performers, hmm. which was also very, you know, that was great. Toby Whithouse was below me, who, you know, became a great writer. And then this bloke called Daniel Craig, again, whatever happened to him, yeah, lived above me. And so that was a great moment of really rallying around as well, being yeah. in the House of Performers as well, yeah. which was great. Yeah. This was the first time I'd really ever felt at home. I felt a, not a belonging. I mean, that's one thing is, is with, you know, as a street performer, you really are packing the bag up and moving on to the next one. Yeah. When there's a regular gig here, you know, there was 80 gigs in London at Jeez. the beginning of the 90s through the whole week. It's crazy. And you could just kind of go out and just do it. And it was just lovely and easy and... You know, and even when I was getting up with a cast on my leg, there was still incredible support. And so these days, you're sort of splitting your time between stand-up, writing? Yeah, I mean, I still... I, I mean, what happened was, you know, I got more and more TV work, yeah. more, you know, started writing for lots of people. I went through the whole writing for nearly every topical show, being on every topical show... Mm. My love of the TV world has completely fallen out now. It's just, you know, the the, the way they need a, a celebrity that has a face that just has no talent is beyond me. So, you know, I've moved away from that. Been slowly being dragged back into it recently with just a bit of writing for it. But loving my history. Mm. Loving my history. The mislaid comedy heroes. Yes. Is... The, the website is taking off more. That's some really nice stuff on that. Um, yeah, yeah. Just about to do, about to show you a new one actually. Love. Um, where can people check that out? Uh, com. Again, it was a moment of, I think it was Time Out asked loads of comics, you know, your favourite 10 comics, and nobody could get past 1982. <sighs> And I was like, this, this is ridiculous. Yeah. This is ridiculous. And it also made me realise that it doesn't matter how big you are in comedy or in this world. Unless you leave something really special, your legacy will pretty much die when you die. Hmm. To discover about Mrs. Shufflewick and being, you know, TV personality of the year, 1959, 1961 and 1963, was just like so huge. And not a single person, even people of that time, yeah. you go, Mrs. Shufflewick, yeah, probably remember that name, rings a bell. Yeah. It's incredible. It's funny because last night I played the Winter Gardens, which is a big old sort of concert hall in Margate. And I was looking, as I know you would do, 
I was looking at all the old posters for old variety mm. bills on the staircase going up, and Mrs. Shufflewick was on one of them. Right. But, like, sixth down the bill, you know. Mm. And there were all these, you know, there was a couple of TV names or big variety names that everyone's heard of. And then the ten other names. And I look at them, you know, the, the so-and-so brothers or the, you know, who are clearly, you know, acrobats and jugglers or ventriloquists or whatever. Cossack dancers. So many Cossack dancers. Mm. When I look at those posters, I'm not sure how I feel. I kind of, at the same time, feel a real happy kinship that, like, I'm one of them, they're one of us, it's the same thing. But also, it's like, no one knows who the fuck they are anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, I find it really, you know, that... I found out one recently, there's a big sculpture in... Oh, up from uh, Cambridge Circus on the Odeon, the uh, Covent Garden Odeon. Right. And it's the history of theatre. And around the corner there's a little bit, and it, it's called Khaki. And a lot of art critics say, oh, it's so important, that bit, because it's about war and it's about the ugliness of theatre and da-da-da. And I found out that it was made in 1920, and at that time the biggest farce in the West End was a show called Khaki with a comic called Ernie Lottinger, who at the time was huge was just like the biggest fucking comic you can imagine and it's him it's the only person who's actually represented on this frieze and it's considered to be one of the most wow. important pieces of sculpture in london in theater and they don't even know the facts of it and that's really interesting yeah that you kind of go there's so many things like that that just get forgotten yeah that are so important and you sit there i, I watched Michael Grade show about pantomime yesterday and this whole thing about oh a comedy dell'arte and and how it was taken from that and and I'm kind of going well talk about the mummers talk and, and they never and I got into a thing online about somebody's doing a walk and using Grimaldi and how he created pantomime and comedy dell'arte and I wrote to him and went well what about the mummers and they're going what are you talking about and the whole idea that the mummers used to do their plays in the summer, and that's summer mummers, that's how it was done. But they started coming in in winter into village halls and places and do a Christmas show. And part of it, because it's a Christmas period, there's a thing called Twelfth Night, which is the day we take down the Christmas decorations. That is Twelfth Night. And it's also the night of topsy-turvydom, where men become women and women become men. And the most important thing we have in British pantomime is there's a man who's a dame. And the principal boy is played by a woman. Now, they didn't talk about any of that, Ooh. that it comes from this thing Twelfth Night and the mummers. And you're going, how can a researcher on a programme like this not find that out? Yeah. You know, I found that out you, you, online in a few books. And to me, that's my worry, is that those important things would just be forgotten. Yeah. And we're sitting, you know, we're in your house now where every wall is lined with books and DVDs <laughs> and, you know, you are a student of the game, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, th I think, I don't know, yeah, I, 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 as you know, I am too. And I think, why would you be in this if you're not interested in the history I think for me, I mean, there's the old adage, to be part of something's future, you've got to know it's past. Yeah. Yeah. That to me is the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, one, the, one of my shows was about that, about what it feels like and the joy and responsibility of being part of a legacy, being mm. on one end of, of a legacy and knowing that there will be someone that comes next. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, finishing up soon, 
Yes. Because you've promised to make me breakfast. That's true. So, born in London? Born in South London. Born in South London, working class family. Yep. Why are you called Andre? Uh, uh, Why are you not called Gary? <laughs> Gary you or Kevin. You should Gary. Gary, Kevin. Uh, Polish. Ah, okay. Polish. My grandmother, who was an opera singer, and her father was an acrobat. Wow. So it's sort of, you know, the, it came down that there is a lineage. Oh, you got it in you. Yeah. She married a Polish man. And my father is Andre as well. A-N-D-R-Z-E-J. Mm. And I was to be Andre Jr. But I couldn't get my head around the Z-E-J as a kid. Right. And so became Andre with an E. I think I might always refer to you as Andre Jr. Andre Jr. Yeah. I, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, that would be so... Ca- I have so many names. It's like Andre, Vinny. Yeah. My f- because my dad's Andre, most of my family refer to me in my middle name, which is Bill. Okay. So, you know, there's Uncle Billy, Bill, Onji Bill. Onji Bill. Onji Bill. So it's like Onji Bill is half Andre and <laughs> Onji Bill. Dre? Never Dre? Some people Dre. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have Dre quite a few times. Um, Onj. Yeah, so many. I think, to me, you're always Vinny. Because when I first met you when I was like 17, it was incredibly exciting to know somebody called Vinny. <laughs> that was like a name of television. Vinny. Hey, yeah, Vinny. You know? <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Vinny. <laughs> Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode was proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org. And huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we can improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Fame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just before wrapping things up, a little extra shot of wisdom from Andre. Do you have any last remarks for the listening audience? And I, I cannot think. I, 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 for any of the street performers that are listening, I miss you all. Um, retire at 50 <laughs> and always walk down the stairs never walk down sideways <laughs> on behalf of myself story editor Magic Brian Matt Ricardo who captured this interview and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame we hope this finds you well and as you perform for audiences around the world please remember to use your superpowers for good I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy 
Thanks for listening. Ta-da!